forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writers Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh yeah! Before we get started today, uh, I'm chatting with Craig Moss, uh, who has a new movie coming out. You know Craig as the writer director of Badass and the Badass sequels, uh, yes. but he has let us in coming soon. Um, Craig, thanks for chatting. Please, yeah. tell me about Let Us In. Well, Let Us In was inspired by this online urban legend called the Black Eyed Kids. And I don't know if, if, if people aren't aware of the Black Eyed Kids because I wasn't until I, I checked it out online. And most, most older people don't know about this, but the younger kids do. Um, it's a bunch of teenagers who, who wear these hoodies who have these eyes that are completely black. There's like no whites to the eyes at all. So it's incredibly creepy when you look at them. But what they do is they come up to you when you're at your most vulnerable in your home, uh, or if you're in your car parked in a parking lot, they knock on your window or your door and they ask to be let in. And it's sort of this metaphor for them taking you and abducting you. So so after learning of, of this urban legend, um, we kind of created a story around that, but based on a, a young uh, 12-year-old uh, female protagonist who is sort of ostracized in this small town and um, a lot of her friends start to go missing. So she's the one who's going to step up and, and, and try to save the day and, and, and become the hero. So um, that's sort of the quick little overview of, of what the film's about. That sounds really cool. Um, why why this story? Why is this the thing that you sort of gravitated to after doing these much more um, obviously comedic movies? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, after I did the badass movies, I started, I was lucky enough to start doing these thrillers. And um, I, I just, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed telling the story in, in through through this genre. It just was, was, more very interesting to me i mean i love the comedies and the action comedies but something about this was was just a lot of fun to do and i love being able to tell the story in the genre so um we were lucky enough to to get some financing for a film and and after researching and and finding this sort of idea of the black eyed kids i just thought oh this could, this could be really really cool so we went ahead, um, Joe Calero and I went ahead and, and uh, wrote the screenplay and, um, and decided to make it more for this younger set. We, we wanted this sort of gateway uh, sci-fi thriller adventure story into um, you know, the, the more scarier stuff. So we, we wanted to, to bring back this genre that for, for these kids and this, this age set that we really haven't seen in, in, in a while. And I was, you know, obviously a huge fan of Goonies. And so I, I was sort of wanting to do that. So what, that's what kind of got us going. What was the writing process like? Um, very detailed beat sheet um, and um, perfecting the beat sheet. And then at that point, starting to write the pages. Mm -hmm. And uh, once we had the beat sheet in place, which was like a few weeks, we, we were able to churn out a screenplay in, in another around three weeks to, to completion. And then um, 
we went into pre-production probably maybe a month after that, after we finished the screenplay. Oh, wow. Um, Was there, how how did you guys work together? What was that process like? Um, We were, I I don't like to to be in the same room when writing. So it's a lot of like sending pages and, and um, getting revisions and then sending it back and forth. And then, you know, finally getting it to where we, we want the screenplay to be. Yeah, that makes sense. And and yeah. I mean, as the director, it feels like you had to have an eye on practicality, sort of the the bigger picture of this. Does that weigh into the um, the writing process? It does. Yeah, it totally does. It's weird because when you start writing, when you first start writing it, you have all these great ideas of how you want the screenplay to be, and then once you get that final product, and then you kind of have to act as the producer director you realize that a lot of those things aren't going to be possible just based on the budget and and how you're going to go about doing it so you have to kind of scale things back and go back in and make it realistic for you know because i mean this is a small film sure we we you know so that was that was a whole other process so it becomes a little like schizophrenic when you're you're the writer and then producing and then directing it's the you start to go at war with yourself a little bit, but. Well, yeah, how do you, how do you manage it? How do you start to work that out? I think the, the bottom line is for that is the budget, you know, at the end of the day, it's, you've got, you've got the budget and, and everything kind of works around the budget because that's the reality. And so that's your sort of anchor. And then, Mm -hmm. so, you know, as much as you want to, as a director, fight for certain things, you, you you have to be realistic and realize that okay, there's another way to make this work. This is sure. this will be the better way to make it work that will fit within the budget. And did once production started, um, what was rewriting like, or were you able to sort of take care of that beforehand because you'd been along for the whole process? Yeah, um, it was minimal, thank goodness. I mean, you know. There was a couple locations, uh, you know, that we lost in, in the last minute that we had to find during production. So at that point, when you're moving into a new location, you have to rewrite some things a little bit per the location. But um, other than that, I mean, it was pretty much well established. The screenplay, you know, it's it's because we had such a tight schedule too we shot this in roughly 14 days so mm. it's hard to start rewriting on the fly when you're trying to prep as a director but also deal with it as a producer you know at the same time so we we, we were joe and i were pretty much there with the screenplay before you know starting production that makes sense um yeah when when did you shoot we shot this um, before the pandemic. We we ended up shooting this the summer of um, 2019. Okay, so so yeah. just in time. Um, just in just in time, exactly. But we were we were lucky enough that we were able to do a lot of the post through Zoom, and you know yeah. that that was a lifesaver during the the pandemic. Totally, that's great. I yeah. my only my other question about production, which I guess isn't really a writing question. Um, is you're working with a lot of kids in the movie and yeah. like how do you i mean i know that that can be difficult on production is there a way yeah. to sort of hedge for that in the writing stage 
Yeah, I mean, look, to be honest, I don't know what I don't know what I was thinking going into for, for Joe and I going into the screenplay because you forget the amount of hours they can work during the day, and uh, it that becomes a huge hurdle when you you become ambitious with what you're trying to shoot. So so um, you've all these kids that you know have their limited hours and then they also have to there was a set teacher so they obviously had to do their schoolwork too so it was tough to navigate but but it 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 was you know these kids are great they were terrific such a great cast and and they're really talented but yeah that was a huge a huge deal for sure <laughs> um i'm curious going back to the writing of the script yeah. You know, once you sort of landed on this is the sort of story we want to tell, uh, right. this is the genre, this is like, it feels like these movies that we grew up with. Um, right. Is there is there a personal story in here? Like, what was your connection to the story outside of that sort of, I love this kind of movie aspect? Well, I mean, it's based entirely on my youth. I mean, you know, I discovered, I did discover aliens and I did save the sure. day. So, so it's autobiographical, which no, strictly so. It, it, yeah, yeah, exactly. But no, it um, not so much based on my situation, but more from my daughter's perspective. So Mackenzie, who stars in the film, is my daughter. She plays Emily, um, and then I have an, an older daughter named Olivia. So, a lot of the stuff that was going on with the bowling and the, the high school situation, the middle school situation, is stuff that. I was witnessing through both my daughters. And so, um, so, so a lot of that comes from this real place of, of what they were dealing with and what I've seen with them and their friends and, and what's been going on lately with them. Oh, that's great. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you, did you learn anything about them in, in writing that? Um, I realized how unhip I am just through, like <laughs> sure. dialogue that I was writing, but, uh, but thank God my, my daughter Mackenzie was, she actually was a co-producer on this film and she consulted with a lot of that dialogue and, and a lot of, you know, a lot of the interaction between the kids and stuff. So it wasn't some old dude, you know, trying to write young dialogue. So. <laughs> That's great. I love it. Yeah. Um, well, I can't wait to see yeah. the movie. Um, tell me when does let me in come out? Um, so let us know be coming out July 2nd, July 2nd, uh, uh, Fandango, Apple TV, uh, iTunes, direct TV all over the place. It'll, it'll be everywhere. So, you know, it'll give people a chance to actually see the movie, which is great. And, and we're excited for it to be released. Terrific. Well, folks listening to this, uh, you can check out, let us in at all of those places. Cause I think this will be out by the time, um, the movie comes out. Yeah, um, oh, great. Check it out. And Craig, thanks so much for chatting. Thank Good luck you. with the Thank next you. one. Thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you on another one. All right, let's do it. Uh, folks, Ed Solomon is here. I'm thrilled to talk to him. You know Ed um, as the creator of the Bill and Ted or co-creator of the Bill and Ted universe. Uh, as well as having written screenplays for Men in Black, uh, Charlie's Angels, Now You See Me, uh, a million things. Mosaic, which we will definitely talk about, a terrific show. Uh, and the just out No Sudden Move, 
Um, Ed, let's talk about, I'm going to talk about some of the more obscure stuff too at a certain point, but um, let's talk about No Sudden Move first and, uh, you know, where this movie came from, why, why was this the movie to write? It feels a little different from some of the other stuff you've done. I love this kind of movie and Stephen and I had worked on Mosaic and really I fell in love with the crime procedurally kind of thing, even though I wouldn't call this even remotely a procedural, but I loved getting to write some of the movies or types of movies that I love to watch. Mm-hmm. I find myself watching movies like, you know, obviously like Chinatown, you know, like deep yarns where you start, you can even that are so well-made that you can actually start in the middle of the movie and just be drawn in because of the DNA of it is so cohesive and so complete that the fact that a director, one of my favorite directors on the planet, before I knew him personally, tr- entrusted me with Mosaic. And then we developed enough of a relationship where he and Casey Silver, the producer said, hey, we're thinking of doing this kind of a film. Would you be interested in talking about it? I was like, oh my God, of course. Honestly, to have a guy like that trust you to do it, especially someone you trust so much, was a game changer in a certain way. I was, you know, no matter what, I will, do this. I'll write it on spec. I'll get it right for us. Like whatever you want, I am hundred percent in. And I have found it to be such a relief. Comedy writing is hard and it's hard and you get, and, and, and I'll be, to be totally honest, the older you get, the harder it gets, not just because uh, the world is shifting. And, you know, I mean, your job as a writer is to stay shifting as the world shifts, but it's but to be totally honest, I think it's hard to be in a comedy frame of mind all the time. Comedy writing requires, at least for me, while I love to laugh and I love being around funny people and nothing makes me happier than someone that'll just play. You know, you, they throw out something and you run or you throw it and they run. It's a very hard state of mind to exist in continuously, whereas my mind naturally goes deeper into, well, what if, and what if this, and then what if that? And that leads less toward comedy to me and more toward intrigue and drama and character relations. And as one gets older, one, (laughs) and I'm not speaking about myself here, of course, I'm talking about (laughs) the objective one, uh, one wants to be able, all right, let me, as I got older, all right, I'm old. God damn it. But, but this I, is true. This is a fact. And it's, it's something I've been thinking about a lot that like, you know, I came up in comedy and like the older I get, the less I want to do it because it's hard to get to that space. Now, you are doing both. Like you're, you're lucky enough that you get to do this crime stuff. Does the crime or the drama stuff give you something that writing comedy doesn't? It's a different demarcation of what success is, but at the end of the day, it's a very similar journey. What I mean by that is when you're writing comedy, you still have to get inside the character. You still have to be writing from a place of truth. You still can't be searching just for the gag. You know, there are comedies that do that and that are great, like the Zucker movies, um, Python movies, like the Woody, early Woody Allen movies, the, you know, where they're just going joke to joke to joke. And that's 
great. And I love those. I, I would never be able to write at that level of comedy ever in my life. And when I worked on a Gary Shandling show, I worked with writers that could do that. And that was amazing to watch people that can just grab a joke out of the ether and bring it down and pull it down. And like, you're just odd. And nothing is more fun than being in a room of people like that, especially if they're nice people and laughing. But you still have to do the truth work. You still have to write characters that exist within the DNA of the thing you're creating and don't puncture that. So if you're making a Python film, you know what you're doing. You're going joke, 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 joke. But everything else to me exists on a continuum. You know, and it's what is the intention? What are you trying to do? What does the story want? And for me as a writer, the only way I can approach it is character, 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 character. The characters carry the tone and the mood of the film. I had this, you know, I've, I've talked about this before, so I won't belabor it because, you know, I've said this, but, but, you know, I had this, I wouldn't call it an argument with Tommy Lee Jones because it was very one-sided in that he was the guy talking, but it was a <laughs> discussion where I listened and his contribution was to say it's either comedy or science fiction, make up your mind. And then he used an expletive and I won't say it, but it was. And he was like, you have to figure it out because you know, it can't be both. And I was saying, dude, it's just not good enough science fiction. I did speak actually it's not good enough science fiction to be a drama point being it needed the mood that being a comedy allowed, you know, the, to me, the mood is the envelope in which the whole thing takes place. And to me, that mood is carried on the back of the, the characters. And so if you're writing a drama and the characters have a sense of humor or, you know, if the drama, quote unquote, has a comedic sensibility within it, all the better. And to me, the, the comedy training, quote unquote, uh, allowed me to know that, hey, if, if I need to on a craft level or if I want to loosen it up here or if it just feels like this is funnier. I love that because I, I don't think humor ever ruins anything. But the trend... And it's only human, right? Like, human. We all have senses of humor. We have sense of humor. Yeah, it just makes for that a better, I think, interchange, you know, between you and let's say, and the ultimate person you're speaking with, which in this case is an audience, you know. But when you laugh, like when you and I were, before we started, we were laughing, you know, we laugh a little here, but when you laugh, it's because you share a worldview. And so it's a kind of connection that... Uh, you don't get necessarily in something that's non-comedic. And so the affirmation comes back quicker. The understanding, when I was saying before, there's a kind of metric for judging it, which is, is it funny? Am I getting laughs, et cetera? That's the definition of success mm -hmm. comedy. Once you're off the pure comedy spectrum, the metric for success is more difficult to ascertain, but it's equally important. And the comedy has actually... I think it's easier to go from comedy to not comedy than from not comedy to comedy, period. <laughs> yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, do you have for yourself a measure of success uh, in storytelling? Yes. Like does just on that level? Yes. Does it affect me emotionally? My body tells me the whole thing at all times. I I think those of us that... There's always a tendency to write from a cerebral place, but I believe intelligence in narrative runs throughout the whole 
body. You know, we, we tend to think that you write from your brain. I, I think you write from a place, I write from a place of body, of feel, of empathy, empathy for human beings, putting myself in their headspace. And once I feel them subjectively, I can write from that subjective place. And then you pull out like to the uh, 30,000 foot and look at it objectively and judge, well, is this holding up? What does this mean? If this character is doing this, what does it mean on a story level, et cetera? But to me, two things happen. When something's not working, it's almost like I fall asleep. I can't keep going. And my whole body shuts down when it's not working. And sometimes I don't know why. Do you have that? You're nodding. Is that? Yes. It's right. So it's like, it's like, I don't understand. And then your whole body feels it. Like, I don't know what's wrong. Um, <laughs> I can't write. And, and your whole body tells you, you suck. You were right all along. You suck. You never could have done this, should have done the job, et cetera. So that's what happens when it's not working. And I've learned to go, oh, it must be that the script's not working. Although it feels like every life choice I've ever made is not working. <laughs> then, when it's working, another thing happens and everyone who's worked with me, like Chris Matheson, when we're every time, even on Bill and Ted, when Chris is the co-writer, co-creator, Bill and Ted, he will mock me mercilessly because when something's working, even comedically, I get emotional. Sometimes I'll even cry. It's tragic. And everyone who's worked with me is like, uh oh, here it comes. But I've come to really trust that. Like when when, when something truthful happens in a scene or I, I make a connection that I hadn't realized was going to happen, I actually get emotional. And I actually really trust that as a meter. And you have to. I mean, like, what else do we have to measure against, right? You you have to find these things in yourself that tell you that the, the way you're working or what you're doing works. Um, and we'll get into some process stuff. Like, can you get yourself to that place? Like, it feels like you have to be very emotionally available and vulnerable in whatever you're writing. That's what your process sounds like. Do you have to trick yourself into that? Do you have ways to get into that? What a great question. That's a part of it. And it's a crucial part of it, but it has to be working in tandem with the the part of you that on a non-emotional level can look at your work and make an objective judgment. How do you do that? Well, to me, that's myself plus time. In other words, I'm finished with something in the subjective way, and then I look at it objectively. Obviously, as you do it more and more, that dance between subjective, objective, or inner, outer, or however you, whatever you want to call it, uh, that dance can happen quicker, even in the same day, even in the same hour, and sometimes within the same minute, where you can kind of go in and out, in and out. But I wouldn't recommend to new writers to do that. To new writers, and I would say this if I had a chance to talk to my new writer self years ago, I would say focus on the subjective until you're through the tunnel and then step out and objectively analyze it and have faith that writing is a lifetime thing. And if you aren't happy with something, you can get rid of it and replace it with something else because you're just making it up. Have the com- you know have the confidence to know it's a long game. Don't get so in love with your words and your scene that you, you know, it's like sometimes it's like creating a, a brick pathway that you're going brick by brick by brick by brick, and you forget to look at where you're going, so it just ends mm-hmm. up you end up on a horseshoe or something. So, um, so it, it exists as one. Um, the subjective state exists as one state, uh, but it has to exist in tandem with 
objective analysis, which as I was saying, is either myself plus time or feedback from others. You know, how do you get a, a group of people and how do you curate that group of people in a sort of set of concentric circles so that you're getting feedback that both helps you understand whether what you're conveying is actually being conveyed or what you want to convey is being conveyed. Or if there's something else you're conveying you weren't aware of that needs to be attended to, or if it's just not working and how do you do that? So you don't get so completely defeated that, you know, you, you get discouraged. So selecting the right people to give you feedback, being honest with yourself about the feedback and so when you when I say I'm really an emotional writer, I try to write from an emotional place, but I try to receive feedback from a non-emotional place, which is a very difficult thing to achieve at any level because everything in your body tells you, you know, oh, they're they're you know my it didn't work or or they're wrong. I mean, there are so many things in your own head that you go through when you're hearing so-called negative feedback that you can really trip yourself up unless you're really careful. And yeah. have learned to allow that emotional experience to exist, the emotional experience of the negative feedback, the criticism to exist and inform you, but not, def again, not deflate and defeat you. And I've actually come to use all those feelings. I've tried to figure out a way to recycle the anger I feel at someone else, the depression and disillusionment I feel about myself, the shame that I feel when somebody doesn't like what I wrote the anxiety, like you can actually tap into each of those emotions and recycle them in your favor. I, from the look of befuddlement, I feel like maybe I should elaborate on that. Well, I'm going to follow up anyway. So yeah, please do. <laughs> at every stage, I need to relearn these things at all moments. No matter how many times you've done this, you, uh, I should say, no matter how many times I've done this, I find myself constantly falling into that category of like, do I really know what I'm, wait, what am I doing? And, and that sort of revisiting basic principles, I can't tell you how often I'm just like at screenwriting 101, wait, 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 this isn't working. Wait, 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 wait. What does this character want? Why is this character here? What are they, what's their objective? What's their obstacle? Like literally, Back to basics, back to basics. The other one I'm saying all the time is like, what is my old friend, the truth? In the truth, where would this character be at this moment and why are they there? Not because why did Mr. Cleverhead create the plot that needs this character to be here, but why are they really there? And if you can't figure out why, or you can't engineer a great reason to fit into your fancy plot, your plot ain't working. Get rid of your preconceptions and look at your character. Your answer will be in your character at all times. But back to the question of personal emotional state, and I'm still working on this. Like I'm still trying to figure it out, but basically let's say I give you my script and you go, dude, it's fucking boring or, or I don't, I don't get it, dude. Sorry. I know what you're trying to do, but I don't get it. Well, what, you know, you can imagine all the responses like we all feel the shame what does that do? If you are open to the shame and not try to push it away, it actually puts you in a state of vulnerability and openness where you can be like of humility, where you can go, okay, it's not working. Let me try to understand and accept that. And let me, see. and on an emotional level, why not? What's not working? What would I like it to be instead? 
anger, you get mad. That anger, if you turn it toward what you've already written, allows you to go, okay, you know what? Fuck you, script. Fuck you. I'm going to fucking punch you in the fucking spine and break you. And it helps you to actually break up what you've already done. Like just to, like get really angry at your own material. I don't need you. I don't need you to be the same as I thought you were going to be. You're not, you disappointed me. You let me down. You know, that helps you break up the patterns that you both memorize and get married to. Uh, what else? F fear, anxiety that can get your ass out of the chair or into the chair, I guess. And, you know, and like out of your moping, um, I don't know what are the other ones that I said, but like basically you can figure out for yourself how to utilize these, <laughs> these feelings to actually turn what you're doing into an upgrade as opposed to, you know, just making something. Okay. I know I'm not finishing that sentence, but the reason is there's this other thing, which is, why do you rewrite something? You know, do you rewrite it to please yourself? Do you rewrite it to please someone else? And a lot of times for writers who are fortunate enough to be working professionally, you're having to please others in a room who are paying you or who control the future of it. And that's one set of skills, which we can talk about if you want, but there's the other, which I think is um, more important, especially for new writers, which is how do you know when to make changes or not? And how do you know who to listen to and why? And how do you know uh, why you're making the changes? Like if I, again, back to the example, I gave you my script. I feel vulnerable. I feel anxious. You, Ben, are going to be giving me feedback. You don't care for it. You have problems. My body gets anxious. My mind gets anxious. We are human beings. Our tool that got us through evolution is our brains, our intelligence. What do we want to do with that? We want to solve the problem. So we get rid of the anxiety. That need to solve quickly is often the enemy of success in your writing because it comes from two places, either to rid your own anxiety or to please the person you're getting notes from. Because I would probably like more than anything for you to read it two and a half weeks later and say, dude, you fixed it, congratulations. But then I'm writing for you. So how do you not make it about resolving your own anxiety and how do you not make it about pleasing another person? And that involves, for me at least, not reacting up front, either positively or negatively, but listening and really listening. And it's hard. Really listening to criticism is hard. And then sitting with the criticism for a while is hard. But if you can sit with it and be trust that the this sort of rise and fall of emotions you're feeling as we talk sad disappointed angry embarrassed you know let that rise and let that fall and within that just experience what you're feeling and use those feelings to go okay what in my perfect world would it be then why am i rewriting it and and what do I really want it to be? And I, if you wait long enough, if you hold the ideas in the back of your head that you're being told, usually what happens for me at least is new ideas emerge based on the criticism that may not be a direct answer to your mm -hmm. criticism, but will improve the script. And on a professional level, let's say you were my boss, you're going to want me to treat you with respect like we're colleagues. 
So that requires me to really listen to you, not pretend and not get defensive in the room because that's just going to piss you off, you know, but actually go away and listen and come back. Because if I do that, even if you and I disagree, or if I can't solve your exact note, but I fix something else, the fact that I've listened to you is what's really important to you. As a, you know, as a new writer, the key is you're always, you're an equivalent idiot. If I, like, if you, if you, if you don't listen to someone's problems, you're kind of an idiot. And if you don't, and if you listen too much to their solutions, yeah. you're almost equivalent of an idiot, <laughs> which is listen to the problems people are having and then take it on as your own responsibility to address how to solve them. Because I can't expect you, Ben, or anyone else to solve my problems but I need your help in understanding what I'm conveying and not conveying. And if I can with maturity go, okay, this part's not working. This part seems to be working. Why? And if I can with wisdom, look at the whole piece and know like when you go to a doctor and you have a neck problem, the doctor doesn't just look at your neck. They look at your spine. Your, are you sitting on your wallet? What kind of shoes are you wearing, et cetera. So if you can do that with your script and go, well, Ben's having a problem on page 75 Oh, the solution's on page 12. If I set this up differently, that will make sense or whatever. That can, can ease your tension, you know? Yeah, and I think it'll ease your tension. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I, I think, you, you know, you get at something really interesting here, which is the core of this being like, this job that we have is writing for yourself for someone else. Yes. Um, and, and, but keeping, keeping that idea of you're doing this for yourself is incredibly healthy and helpful. Um, and I wonder if there's something to the fact that you came up in TV that, you know, your first sort of 10, 15 years in the business was writing for TV, which is a very different schedule. It's a very different kind of process to feature writing, um, helped you come to that healthy and helpful process. Well, actually, well, if I can, you know, it's funny. I, I had written a bunch of plays in college mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, my first job was TV. And then my next job on the IMDb scale was TV, but we actually sold Bill and Ted before the Gary, Sh it's Gary Shandling show. Um, so weirdly, I kind of was doing both, but the TV experience, like the Laverne and Shirley experience was really hard for me. Um, I wasn't, I want to talk about that uh, yeah, if we can. Absolutely. Um, it says here, uh, you were, what is this? You must get quoted this all the time. You were the youngest member of the WGA at the time. Is that right? Oh, I don't get quoted it all the time, but uh, <laughs> I, I was told that at the time. Well, cause I was, I was, was wild. I was a senior at UCLA and I got this job that was based on, I had been selling jokes to comedians and one of the comics I wrote for was Gary Chandling. And he introduced me to a guy named Mark Sotkin, who a wonderful guy who was producing Liver and Shirley. And Mark came to a play that I had written at UCLA and he hired me as a staff writer. And, you know, and I've talked to Mark recently even about this. Um, I wasn't ready really. I, mm. I had some raw skill, but no experience and actually not the enough skill to be what I had hoped to be on that 
but also I think what they might've expected. And I, I kind of failed out of the process because I didn't get hired onto another show by Mark and I didn't get hired. The show was the last season of the show. So I, that, that wouldn't have been a thing, but I didn't get, like, I didn't stay in that system. And I think it would have destroyed me to be totally honest. No, really. Why is that? Not, well, not just because TV had a, yeah, this wasn't Mark. Mark was not doing drugs and stuff at the mm-hmm. time. But like TV had a 80s TV and that world was just very druggy. Uh, I didn't realize like people were doing coke all, all around me, never inviting me. Actually, thank God. I didn't understand why they had so much energy in the afternoons and in the nights. I just thought they were better at it than me. I didn't realize that they weren't inviting me into the rooms where they're all doing coke, which was uh, a relief. I, I probably would have just fallen off the whole trail. I, I, I would, I would think, um, which interestingly, if I, you know, I've looked at a lot of the inflection points in my career and like I can attribute every positive piece of movement to having failed out of something else, uh, weirdly. So, um, which I the- mean, speaks to, you know, the tenacity you need to stay in this business, um, and succeed in this business, but it also speaks to you personally that like you, you, I'm sure you took it as a setback, but it also set you onto something else. The desperate desire to receive the approval of others and to not seen as a failure and the scramble that that took combined with a kind of combination of insecurity and probably ego, like at the same time made it so that even when I hit a moment after Laverne and Shirley, where I was selling jokes again and trying to write for, I was writing for a game show and I was doing stand up, but I was like going chasing $20 bills and, you know, $50 checks, you know, really unable to pay my rent and borrowed money from my parents and thought I am my worst nightmare. I'm a flash in the pan. And I got to face all the people I went to college with who I was so proud to go to school and be a writer on a TV show, but I also you know, out of school, like, like how fancy am I? Now I'm a guy applying to grad school again, you know, business school and law school and thinking maybe it's over. At that same time, Chris Matheson and I and uh, me, I should say, Chris Matheson and me and Ryan Rowe, Mark Sandrowski, Mark Jaffe, four really good friends of mine, were doing improv comedy just to work out, just to push ourselves with no audience. We didn't want an audience. And we had, Chris and I had done the characters of Bill and Ted like eight months earlier, and we just would mess around doing Bill and Ted for a while. So right around that time, Chris had written a script that was just cracked I me. Mean, it was just brilliant. It was a, it was a um, parody. He had actually written a couple of film parodies that were so funny. And I was like, hey, Chris, what, what if we wrote something together? And well, what should we write? Well, hey, what if we took, that, took Bill and Ted and maybe we turned him into a movie? And we wrote that and we made each other laugh. And right at the end, I mean, honestly, I was going to give up. We just, it just got, it luck. Oh, and we got fired. Oh, and I had agents that fired us. Like when they read the Bill and Ted script, like hated it. <laughs> so how was, and there's a moment where one of the agents, I just remember he was like, you, I beg you, do not send this to anyone. I beg you. Do you hear this sound? 
That's the sound of me falling on my knees, begging you not to send it to anyone. And finally, I had a meeting. I, Chris, I remember he drove me in his persimmon Carmen Ghia to the basement <laughs> of the agency and went up to the top up floor of the agency, which is now the Soho House in West Hollywood, apparently, I, I believe. Um, but drove me up. The whole agency there, I was going to give the rallying cry. You know, if you guys don't believe in this, then maybe I'm with the wrong people because I believe in this. And they said, well, maybe you are with the wrong people. And they fired me. <laughs> and so I thought it was over, over, over. Then a guy that I'd met, David Greenblatt, an agent that had, you know, he was a young agent that I hadn't gone with two years earlier on Laverne and Shirley. I was like, um, we'd stayed friendly. And I was like, um, would you read this script? And I, he read it. He liked it. He said, let me see what I can do. And we got it optioned and we just got on the bottom rung of that ladder. And then, boom, we were in again. And so I, I want to ask two um, sort of follow up questions to that, which is like, that's amazing. Like, that's the kind of story you love to hear. Right. My agent didn't know anything. Um, I wonder if there was something to the Bill and Ted script that there you guys were doing it for fun you know it was a new experience working with with uh chris you um or writing with chris who was a friend already and you didn't have the anxiety that you would may have had on the tv show or on other stuff it wasn't necessarily to be like this play goes up in two months like it was a different experience for you and i wonder if that if that's what people were reading in the script, like that kind of lightness, that kind of sense of fun. Okay, so first of all, I've never been asked that question ever in X number of years since Bill and Ted. So thank you for that. And that's a great question. I think maybe so. And I think I've spent the rest of my own career trying to recreate that type of experience, which doesn't mean the fully laughing with your good friend experience, but rather creating the space, fabricating the space that we had during Bill and Ted because nobody cared. Fighting to block off physical, emotional, and temporal, you know, time to have the freedom to fuck up, to have the freedom to experiment, to have the freedom to not actually solve your problems, to have the freedom to go down the wrong path for a long time and then come back. Like, how do you do that as a professional? Or how do you do that when your time is limited because you have another job? And to me, the answer is the same. It is an aggressive, literally aggressive move. And you have to be aggressive with other people and with yourself. And you have to force that from them and yourself. And it's hard because it means being maybe an asshole to someone else. I am sorry. Like for me, I never have lunches. I don't have business lunches or social lunches. Always. People are always like, hey, what if we have lunch? And I'm like, you know what? I have learned that that fucks my whole afternoon up because I don't know. I might be free at lunch, but I often am not. And I know that I have to say no, because I hate knowing that there's a ceiling. I like having a natural writing um, cycle, which doesn't last all day. Sometimes it goes for two, three, four hours or one, two, three hours. But usually I need about three or four hours of clear time 
to really write, to be able to have 45 minutes where nothing comes, to have an hour where I'm just walking around physically or at least metaphorically banging my head against the wall and not judging myself. And in a perfect day, I have two of those cycles with a break, but I don't always get that. Um, so the shorter version is I spend my whole career and life trying to recreate that experience. And I would say this to people who do are working other jobs. And by the way, you know, I'm a parent, I'm a parent. Uh, there are other jobs, you know, I, I, obviously I get to dedicate my, most of my day to my work life, to my writing life, but to, to, to people who are working that other job that, that is a hopefully temporary job until this stuff materializes, you do have to be aggressive and with yourself. And sometimes for myself, I, that's why I gradually, pretty early on learned that I need to go somewhere to write partially just because it sets an intention. I'm here to work, even if it's just a coffee shop or a different place in your house, you know, or anything like that. It, it's really helpful to, for me, and maybe not for other people, but for me to go somewhere to write. Also, it takes some aggression to get rid of the things that we habitually fall back on, like Twitter or whatever, you know, whatever you tend to go to, to distract yourself, you got to be comfortable with living in what they call not knowing space. Like we were talking about earlier, which is hard. And you have to let that into your life and to let that in and not react against it by trying to avoid it or counter it or combat it is hard. That's where you have to be aggressive with yourself. And you've got to honor your own ability to fail and the necessity to fail and not let that get you down, but rather understand it's part of the process. And then it becomes a question of how much patience do you have? Because it takes patience for all of us at every level with everything. Yeah, it's it's funny um, hearing about you sort of chasing that that fun, that glee, that new experience in each um, project. Like, I feel like, you know, you've, you've obviously, you've written a lot of movies that have been made. I'm sure you've written a lot of movies that have not been made. Um, but I felt like watching Mosaic, that, that fun that you must have had at like figuring out that puzzle at, you know, writing in this new mode, um, like watching that, felt like someone who was like, I got to try something. I appreciate it's not it. a question. It's just a compliment. But the question is, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> the question is like, is my read on that correct? Like, was that uh, that kind of similar experience? On several levels, yes. Uh, the first being, it was my first thing with Stephen. And he's a person I have... And by, I was going to say I have admired greatly. And what I was going to add to that was there were very few people that I admired and then got to work with and admired even more afterwards. And he is one of a high watermark and for, you know, not just as a creative person, but as a presence on set and a presence in your life. Honestly, he, uh, he values the work that others do around him and that value and trust makes you do your best work. And he also doesn't suffer fools, which I really appreciate. And I know that. So when he and Casey Silver came to me and said, hey, we have this little 10-minute experiment. Would you be interested in just talking to Stephen about it a little bit? And 
seeing if we can write a little 15 page script. I was, I was without question. And I said, I'm happened to be like, I remember saying something like I'm in New York a lot while I'm making plans to buy a bunch of coach tickets to go to New York, you know, like I'm going to make it work. I'm going to work my ass off. I am not going to small talk and I am going to really work hard. And it required improving it. It required raising my game. So I was dedicated on Mosaic, not just for Casey and Steven, two people I've known in passing, but never worked with and always admired, but also creatively given an opportunity to write in a genre I've never written in the sort of small town crime thing in a form that doesn't exist yet, branching narrative. And I thought, okay, I've been doing this for three decades by this point. How often do you get a chance to actually force yourself to grow your muscles in areas that you never would have grown? And I knew that if I succeeded at this, I'd come out the other end, a better writer. And that's my metric now for everything. Will I be a better writer on the other side of it? So I was dedicated to that and it was fun and it was challenging. I can't even tell you having to write seven and a half hours of material with characters, every one of whom had to be worthy of having their own movie about them. Yeah. It forced me as a writer to go deeper into every character, which I hope continues forward even when I'm doing quote, just a 90 minute, 120 minute piece, you know? So the thing you're looking at behind you, which nobody can see, you know, we're doing another, because they're only listening to this, but on our, we're on a Zoom video chat. Um, you know, we're working on a new one that, Great. you know, having learned what we learned, but, you know, and we are, I love it. I love the challenge of it. I love that it's scary. I love that it's, again, another genre I've not worked in and yet another chance to work in a form that really is new. So we're kind of learning, we're, we're learning from ourselves, but also inventing things that going forward. And, you know, we're trying to stand on the shoulders of others and maybe people stand on ours and do an even better version, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But just the challenge alone is driving me forward. Yeah. But the intellectual challenge would mean nothing, literally nothing, if the story wasn't good and the characters weren't good, because that's ultimately what you what really pulls me is, oh, is this an interesting human being whose mind I want to be in and see where it goes going forward? At the end of the day, that is everything. Is this a human being that not only I want to inhabit, but an actor is going to want to inhabit because it's a complex, fully realized, well-rounded person with flaws and strengths, et cetera. Yeah, outside of the character stuff, I wanna ask sort of a, a technical question, um, mostly because it's something I've been struggling with in, in getting a foot into features. And that's uh, having come from TV. Um, did you learn anything from the process of breaking mosaic? Um, about structure. And I think more specifically, my question is really about how do you handle act two? Two great questions. Yes, I learned a ton about structure. It reinforced this notion that structure is character, character is structure. Where your character begins and ends is 
the defining arc of your structure. It's all about the character. Act two is where we always get lost. For me, the simplest trick, quote unquote, which I've said quote unquote a lot in this, more than I probably have in years. Um, I've used my quote unquote quota, so I'll stop. Act two can be made simpler if you divide it into bite-sized chunks. I use sequences a lot. I don't often, no, I don't always think of movies even as having acts. Some don't. I mean, they all have a beginning, middle and end just by definition. But there are movies where many movies that I've written that do not follow traditional three act structure. And this is a big one for people. If you read screenwriting books, you're gonna think a movie has a first act, a second act, a third act. This is not true. Slap yourself really hard on the face and wake up. It has a beginning, middle and end because it starts and it ends, but sometimes each character has their own beginning, middle and end that is not necessarily consistent with another characters. A first act for one character could end in one spot. A first act for another character could end in another spot. Be aware of that. I had a script that took me a long time to figure out. And part of the reason I was struggling with it was I was dividing it into acts. And then I realized there were five storylines that had different act structures. And once I figured it out, it laid in, laid out, fell into place. So in terms of act two, often what I'll do is I'll divide it into three little mini movies or three little mini acts or five little, you know, call them sequences or call them whatever you want, which I would essentially define as character wants something. And I owe a lot of this to my very good friend who's a wonderful writer named, named Peter, Rob, Peter Gamble, Peter Gamble Robinson, but he goes by Peter Gamble as a writer and he's a tremendous writer and a great teacher. And I learned a lot from him just in terms of breaking things into structure and into one act, you know, uh, one sequence, another sequence, another sequence. What those mean to me are that um, uh, I would define it for myself, a sequence as a character starts wanting or thinking something, or you, the viewer is thinking something. And there's a series of scenes or partial scenes leading up to a moment where that changes, let's say a reversal or a switch, you know, happens or a new piece of information or something changes that can really help you if you imagine like slalom posts down a really steep hill that is full of fog and it's snowing you know but you can see the flags so if you set those flags for yourself i mean you can always change it but if you set those flags for yourself and then write it as though this is a 12 page sequence this is a 14 page sequence this is an 18 page sequence and another 12 page sequence and now i'm in what you would call the third act it makes it a lot easier. You don't have to stick with it, but you set those signposts. They sort of, they're like trail markers. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And also, you know, barreling into uh, the unseen is maybe the best analogy for <laughs> writing yeah. that I've heard. But the good news about writing, <laughs> unlike, unlike barreling into the unseen as a person or like going on a long hike through the woods, let's say, with writing, you have the ability that you don't have on a hike unless you're carrying and staring at a topographical map, but also you don't really have that option. Although I guess with our GPS systems and our phones, <laughs> but basically as a writer, you've got to be in it 
in like in the unseen going barreling through the unseen but then you also have to pull back at a certain point and go where are we in the forest here or where are we are we on this long winding ski slope you know but you do have the ability as a writer to do that the thing to always keep in mind that is your your spine or outline or whatever you want to call it is always in flux it's always mutating and you have to be aware of its mutation as you're writing so that you're not either so that you have the right relationship between what you thought it was going to be and what it's becoming in other words you're not too stuck to what you thought it was going to be and not too stuck to what it's becoming but rather enough to be able to go wait so what does this mean then if it's changing what does that mean about my outline is it better or worse? You know, you go back a beat, you question your assumptions. Okay, I thought this was what the story was. Is that right? Actually, no, it's better the way it's going. Okay, if it's better the way it's going, then I got to change that over there and not be married to it. Or you go, actually, it's not. It was better the way I had it. That means I got to get rid of this fabulous idea that I just spent five days on falling in love with. Um, it sounds like a lot of your process is rewriting and it sounds like a lot of that, you know, sort of comes in the moment, but like, what does a typical writing day look like for you? Well, I've, because I've been doing this a long time, I have a lot of things in the works, you know, like stuff, the thing I'm doing next, I started in 2016. Wow. That was the 500 page spec I wrote as opposed to Mosaic, which started as a 400 page spec, but got set up. No sudden move, which was a spec. Bill and Ted was a spec. But uh, now, well, let me stop you for one sec. Let me interrupt. Um, what is this 500 page spec that you started in 2016 or that you wrote in 2016? What do you it, how, like? Tell me everything. What kind of an idiot would I have to be to do that? Um, I was going to write like an it, it's what became this new thing I'm doing with Stephen that we're starting later. Uh, we're in prep. You know, That's a long prep because of the various things that have to take place. And um, because of certain NDAs, I have to be a little bit of course. suspect in the way I don't suspect, but you know what I mean? Um, I can't yeah. talk too much about it, but I can say, had an idea, knew that we all wanted to try another thing like Mosaic that was both a linear as, you know, show that also had, you know, um, an interactive element to it that's entirely different from the linear show. And got an idea, talked to Casey and Steven about it and said, I'm going to just start writing it. And initially I thought I'm going to write about 60 to hundred pages and then outline the rest. But it was one of those things where I just kept going, got deeper, got deeper, went, I don't know if anyone's going to like this. It took a lot of time off from other things, focused on this, went, dude, this is taking a lot of time. I know. Got deeper, deeper. <laughs> then I had this, them whole, you know, document when I printed it out that was literally more than a ream of paper. And then I went, what the hell did I just do <laughs> coming out the other end? And I hope it works. And fortunately, uh, I got, fortunately it did, but it could have not. Yeah. And I just told myself the same thing. I tell myself on everything because I've written some of my very favorite things I've written weren't made, were read by three people in the world. No, I'm not kidding. Like literally. Sure just like read and went, it doesn't work for us for whatever reason, either they didn't like it creatively or it didn't fit their corporate agenda or the person who had commissioned it or was excited to do it is gone. You know, there's a million reasons and it's hugely disappointing, but the only antidote for it to me is 
just having a lot of things that you're interested in. So you can always be moving forward. Always. You know, I hate when movies open. They're always the worst part for me. The only antidote to that is I'm already well into a new thing. So that's where my energy is always going forward. Never trying to look back unless it will help you moving forward. Meaning I hate watching my stuff, but if I need to, because of I have to learn something, I will, but I, I almost never do. Yeah. Um, I have tried to um, manage my creative life and my career so that I'm always pulled creatively and not f- for money. So even when I'm at a place where I'm actually earning, I can command some good money for some things, but not for other things. I never want that to be the draw. I don't want to take a job for money and I don't want to reject a job for money. Meaning as long as I have enough money to live and pay my bills and make my kids can go to school, et cetera. I want the, I want the thing that pulls me to be creative. And so, and because I've had so many things not made or disappointments or things made and made badly, partially my fault, partially someone else or some combination or hundred percent my fault because of all that, I try to not place too much value. Like I work as hard as I can on everything, but I try to not place too much value on the result of it, rather just keep going as long as I'm engaged. So that's why I ended up with a 530 or 540 page spec script. I was happy writing it. I tried to stay in that space. And when I came out of the space, it was two years later and I had 530 pages and I was like, okay, if no one sees it, no one sees it. My own experience has been good. Yeah. I'll probably need to get a job soon. <laughs> I, I was doing small, I was doing other jobs. And like that's still, yeah. Year. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's a great lesson for, for writers at any level is like, you have to write the thing you care about, right? You have to chase those things because we can tell when it doesn't. I would nuance that slightly differently. Yeah. You, you have to write something you're interested in, which is what mm-hmm. makes you care. I, I've said this before and I apologize if you've heard me say it, but um, I don't buy into the, you have to be passionate. I believe you have to be interested and you have to Mm -hmm. be curious. It's not less valuable than passion. Passion is a lie that we, that we tell ourselves. It's like infatuation with a partner. What you want is intimacy and accessibility and affection and love And that's different than having a crush on someone or being infatuated with them. That's a biological drive to get us to couple. With our own work, I think you have to get rid of the belief that you have to love it at all times, because guess what? That's impossible. It's an impossible metric to set for yourself. And it's not fair to you to think you have to be passionate at every moment about what you're writing. So, for me, it's like, am I interested? Is that make me ask more questions? And I go, well, why would that character do that? Oh, why would she go there? Well, that's interesting. What would happen if she went there and that happened instead of that? Ooh, oh, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's cool. And what you start to gradually have, find is you have something better than passion. You have deep love. You have intimacy <laughs> with. You have a f- great affection for. You have a feeling of being a steward for something, like a parent to something. We are stewards of this idea now. And like we're taking the idea and we're going to try and give it its best life and let it manifest itself into its best form 
that to me is better than passion. Just like inspiration. Like people always think they have to be inspired. Procrastination uh, <laughs> um, for amateurs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'll, you can sit around for years. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it, and it makes you think that you're actually serving a higher cause. Yeah. It's, it's bullshit. You're just procrastinating. Um, what I want to do, because we are running out of time, is sort of give you a speed round here, because there are a bunch of things I wanted to ask about. Um, That's a very, very polite way of saying, can you answer shorter, please? Um, you mentioned in, uh, we mentioned briefly the, uh, it's Gary Shandling show, which you know, I'm sure you've talked about many times over the years, but I feel like occasionally, you know, and especially in the past few years, have, has gotten so much recognition. Uh, and Gary, too, has gotten so much recognition of sort of being ahead of the time and outside of time. Um, just tell me a little bit about that experience. Working with these great comedy writers was a godsend for me because I'm a guy who grew up worshiping at the altar of comedy. That was incredible. My big takeaway is now looking back at it. One, the thing we talked about are breaking story from a place of truth. Sometimes with Gary, you wouldn't even realize you're making a comedy until way later down the line of it. You know, every story we broke, we broke it like we were breaking a drama. The ones that we came up with as a conceptual idea first or a comic idea first were always the worst. <laughs> For those who don't know the show, there was a, Gary played a guy named Gary Shandling who had a TV show that was shot out of his living room. That was the concept of the show. And he had a relationship with the audience. He spoke to camera, but the rest of the people in the show didn't know they were on a TV show. Only Gary and the audience were in on it until this one other character who figured it out, I think in the second season, Leonard Smith was his name. I remember pitching that idea. Oh, um, funny. And that, that, I imagine, but, but, uh, let me just interrupt for a sec. Like I imagine pitching that idea would be met with so much resistance. I remember saying, what if this guy figures it out? Like, I, I can't remember what came first. We wanted to find a role for Paul Wilson mm -hmm. or whether the character came first. I can't remember, but I remember pitching it and I remember being uncertain if they would go for it. And I remember they, they did. So it was like, okay, now there's another guy who knows, you know, but that, but the, the takeaway for me was the shows where we came up with the, the breaking fourth wall idea or the, where we, where we, the physics of the show came before the characters were the worst always. And the shows where we had a good story and the gags, so to speak, the conceptual notions of, you know, Gary walks out into the set and turns and walks into the next set, or we didn't have the budget for an airplane set once. And so we just very held the model airplane and said, we're on this plane, just picture us on the plane. That stuff came out of story. They were always better. They won't, if we had had this idea, what if, Gary has a handheld plane and we pretend that's the plane, the show would have been terrible. Uh, and the last thing I'll say about that is that was one of the only other experiences, like one pet experience where, where we often were left so alone because nobody gave a shit about the show at the time and they didn't really know anything. They were like, it was early days of showtime and the, and like, they didn't, nobody was watching it really. So we got a lot of freedom to just play and we would often write ourselves into a corner and 
to have to literally write ourselves out of the corner. Like we've run out of sets. What are we going to do with more scenes? What are we going to do? Let's reuse the scene and call it something else or whatever. Oh, that's so interesting. I'm going to be much faster. I promise. No, no, that, that was great. Um, who was running the show? Alan Zweibel. What a, oh, a right. good guy, good friend, wonderful writer, funny as hell was a original SNL writer. Uh, so Alan and Gary and I was the, me and them, um, you know, God, Jack, Jack Burns, may he rest in peace. The me and Jack, Alan and Gary on the first season, along with uh, a few others that came in and did punch up worked one or two days a week. Um, that was it. And we were sort of left alone creating this thing. I mean, they they created, I was writing, but creating this thing, we didn't know where it was going or what it would be and whether people would like it or not. And, you know, it was fun. It's, it was it's so fun. interesting. And it's, I would really urge people to go check it out. Um, I think it's sort of, it's still sort of unsung. I really appreciate that. If you do check it out, my favorite episode is one, I think it was first season, it might have been second season, called Schumacher's Go to Hollywood that I wrote with Tom Gamble and Max Prost, two of the nicest and funniest people I've ever met in my life. Um, that's my favorite because it it's the best blend of breaking the fourth wall and the physics of it. Like really there's one moment where, you know what? I'll just leave it. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Yeah. We'll all go watch it and we'll all hit you on uh, Twitter or wherever to, to tell you about it. Join me on Twitter. Um, <laughs> um, it looks like at that time you sort of had a foot in features and in TV. Were you chasing TV stuff? Were, there, were you selling pilots and stuff like that? I never sold no. a pilot. Oh, no, really? I, sold pilot. I sold one pilot called The Unbelievables in 1999, I think it was. And it was basically the premise was The Invisibles, but a decade earlier. <laughs> uh, and um, that was the only time, I think. Yes, the only pilot I wrote. That's interesting. Was it, at that point, it wasn't chasing TV. And now it's all such a blend. I truly, truly, truly couldn't tell you something if I'm working on is, I don't know, this is a long movie. No, it's a short TV series. No idea. Not think about it that way. Just it's whatever it is. If this is a six hour story, period. Yeah. This is really great neat. time breaking in. If you're a young writer right now, the world is, re- it's the goal. It's really the world is open to you. It's the best time in my whole career to be starting, you know? Yeah, I, I, I agree. Myself starting. Sorry. Also, I'm going to be competing with all the young writers. <laughs> I want to stay working, but I'm just one. That'll make you, it'll drive you to be better, I think. It does. It drives yeah. me better. Yeah, for sure. That's the only way. Um, a couple other things I want to ask about sort of being the stewards of Bill and Ted and, and, you know, taking care of these guys who you and Chris created uh, and who, and who you were in many ways, right? A part of us. I mean, I don't think either Chris or I are naturally like Bill and Ted. Um, and but I, just that you started out by playing these characters yourselves or variations of these characters. Um, like this has been with you for a long time. It's bizarre. I was 23. I'm 60. I was 23 when Chris and I came up with them. And I appreciate the way you said it, the stewards taking care of these guys. I mean, with Keanu and Alex, who honestly couldn't be better partners, couldn't ask for better partners in my life than these guys. I love them both. They're great guys. And Bill and Ted is obviously we share, you know, the four of us share these two characters that it's just a joy to be in that headspace. Honestly, that positive 
a buoyant, life-affirming headspace that those characters are. I mean, they don't only feel good things. They get really bummed, but they are so resilient. And they're so dedicated to each other. And, you know, so uh, they see the world in such a way that it's such a pleasant place to be in that it's really fun to write. And the characters went from being this sort of whim that we hadn't, we wrote a movie for not thinking even anyone would read it, let alone there'd be a second one. And then decades later, we'd get to do a third one. Became like a life work instead of just something from my early years. Uh, yeah. Remarkable miracle, I think. Um, I, I really love those characters. That's never been a, we talked about money, <laughs> never made money from them. But I mean, you know, we put our money back into the movie. We didn't mm -hmm. just haven't, this has never been a money job for Chris or I. It's just one of those things that we love these characters. And unlike when we wrote the first one, even when we wrote the second one, people weren't dying for it that much. <laughs> Nobody was dying for it when we wrote the first one. Nobody, you know, obviously. <laughs> and it turns out not a lot of people were dying for it. Well, uh, for the first 14 years of writing uh, film that faced the music, finally it was, Honestly, social media and the deep loyalty of a of a small cross section, but deep of fans mm -hmm. of that that got it made, which made me personally feel very responsible to those people to give them a movie yeah. that at least reflected our best efforts. You know, whether you like it or not, just we really tried to make it the best we could, and whether you like it is not. Control, but, yeah. Right. But, but you were, you were doing right by, you set out to do right by the characters for the fans. It sounds like, and, and, and I think you did. For, yeah. for Chris, me, Alex Keanu, and then secondarily, and also importantly, Scott Kroof, the producer and Dean mm -hmm. Perso, who directed the face of the music, like the six of us, um, Alex Leibovich, who became a producer, one of the funding producers of it, you know, seven of us, the growing team around first, second the fans and then everyone else as long as we were happy and the people who loved the movies for the most part you can't please everyone but we're we're happy i felt good yeah well and, and you should um it's you you guys have done great work with those um we're going to wrap up we didn't even get to talk about you know, we touched on Men in Black. I, I know people have Super Mario Brothers care, uh, questions. I can't. Please. Let me say two things. Uh, positive yeah. negative. I, I only worked for a few weeks on Super Mario Brothers. Right. It's it's weird how much that comes up, but I, I probably have, I don't know, 10, 10 pages of material in the whole movie dotted throughout like a 120-page script. Like, really? I can't credit or blame. I know there are people that love that film. Uh, there's a lot more that probably don't. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I think it's it's seminal for a certain age for sure. But it was a very difficult, uh, you know. And on Charlie's Angels, which was very successful and actually got well reviewed, weirdly, yeah. I can't really take the credit for that because there were so many writers after me that mm -hmm. hardly anything of mine is is in there. So I don't, you know, I for the record, I. I don't think it, my work is reflected in that. That's that's fair. And I think that there's a whole conversation to be had there too. And, you know, please come back and we'll, we'll have that conversation sometime. Uh, in, back. You just tell me when I'll be back. Uh, and I promise to make shorter answers. Um, we'll wrap up as we always do by asking you what you are watching these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? Movies, TV, are you reading anything you love? Anything you want to recommend to folks? 
Uh, yeah. Um, I love, well, I just, I've been watching uh, hacks, which I love uh, just, there's a show, my favorite show that most people haven't heard of is called I hate Susie, which was on sky and is H also HBO max, but that's coincidental. I'm not plugging HBO max. Both of those are actually hacks. <laughs> yeah. I, I promise a company, man. No, I promise I'm not on purpose doing that. Um, I hate Susie is, I think a, it's eight, eight episodes. It's Lucy Preble and Billy Piper create co-created it. Um, it's a brilliant show, which I love, which not a lot of people have seen. Okay. It can be tough to watch because of the anxiety, constant level of anxiety, but it is a, it is a brilliantly written show. Um, I like succession. I just finished, I just started and finished it. Um, I, uh, I'm just reading um, a couple George Saunders short stories. I love, uh, I've been reading some nonfiction and a book by Kurt Anderson, Evil Geniuses, which I love. Um, that's sort of what I'm into at the current moment. My, my head goes, most of the time I don't watch comedy and most of the time I don't read comedy just when I want to relax, funnily enough. Yeah. So. Mm. Um, yeah, I did feel like Hacks was a different thing though, didn't it? That like you could sink it, into that, and and it took it took me a couple episodes to kind of get get registered with it. But then I just started. I think Hannah Einbinder is tremendous. Gene Smart is always amazing. I think the writing is smart. It's very very hard to write a show about comedians that's actually funny, that's yeah. really well written, and the jokes are good. And that show's great. I'm really excited to see where they go with it. Second season for sure. For sure. Uh, Ed, thank you so much. Um, good luck with all the stuff. We can't wait to see what this 500 page uh, behemoth is hopefully next year. A couple of years when you see it, cause we're shooting, we're in prep for a while. So oh my gosh. Yeah. But thank awesome. you. Forever Dog. This has been a forever dog production executive produced by dog. Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.